Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I am Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's most interesting reporter, Laurel Bronze. <laughs> this podcast is powered by the Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. This podcast is also generously supported by Worthy Brewing, putting education first, utilizing green technologies, and experimenting daily to brew the best damn beer in the Pacific Northwest while treading as lightly on the earth as possible. Living out their mantra, earth first, beer second. We have today former police chief Jim Porter. He began working in law law enforcement at age 18, served as Ben's police chief for six years after working for the department for 20 years. His department won the Department of Justice Officer Wellness Award in 2018 for the program he designed to improve the well-being of officers. During his tenure, reduced downtown crime by 20%, helped support a program to embed a professional counselor who goes with officers to respond to mental health calls, now teaches law enforcement at COCC, and plans to teach his model for officer wellness to other law enforcement agencies around the country in his retirement. Jim, that's quite the, quite the list there. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aaron. Um, Jim, how did you get started in law enforcement? What was the, I mean, at 18, you barely know what you want to do, let alone your uh, life career path. You know, I was lucky in that way. I had some mentors really early on. I mean, like elementary school. We had a regional police or a police officer in the city of Springfield where I grew up who was very engaged with the youth. He would stop and play basketball with us. He would stop and talk to us. Uh, and he really became a role model for me early. And, you know, we're talking about the early 70s here where shows like Adam 12 and Dragnet and Emergency were public, public servants in, in the public safety area uh, were seen as, as little heroes. They saw as kind of the glue that bound, bound our society together. So I was very influenced by, you know, the, the actors who were doing this and also <laughs> my local sergeant, um, Al Hartman was his name. I uh, ended up working with his son and later supervising his son, uh, funny enough. And so it was pretty easy for me. I, um, in high school, I wasn't focused enough to really be looking at college. And so I had some really great mentors and a brother-in-law. And uh, he said, you need to go in the military. Uh, my first choice was the Marine Corps. My family uh, has Marines in it. I was uh-huh. in Vietnam where I saw my cousins going to Vietnam. Um, one of them didn't make it back. Uh, two of them came back with injuries. And uh, I, I felt the need to become a police officer in the military. And my brother-in-law took me aside, who had been a Marine and served in Vietnam, and said, you need to go into the military police. If you stick around and wait for college, you probably do not have the self-discipline to do that. And uh, he literally drove me down to the Air Force recruiter because his experience in Vietnam was, uh, I quote, the only people who slept off the ground, had clean clothes and warm food, <laughs> right. So he uh, he literally stood outside while I signed up for the Air Force, and uh, that's what got me into a military police position at the age of eighteen. So you were eighteen at the time he drove you down there. Yes, I was a. Uh, it was the December of my senior year of high school. I was that far in my decision making process that I knew that I uh, wanted to go into the military and I wanted to uh, pursue a police career. And so, literally December of my senior year of high school, I signed up for the military as a military policeman. That that's kind of pre-gap year time. No one no one talked to you about taking the gap year. No, you know, I I, I went to high school in Prineville, and that gap looked like either working for Les Schwab in their factories, working in the uh, forest products industry, or working on ranches. My family 
are ranchers and farmers. And I decided early on that while I enjoyed it, not that much. That's a 24-7 thing. So I decided none of the three of those things really uh, were appealing to me that I wanted to get started on my career. And actually, that was back when we had a pretty good GI Bill also, yeah. which I used extensively later to purchase my house and uh, also work on my secondary education. Jim, in uh, 2014, Portland State University did a community survey and found that 54% of the respondents at that time trusted Ben PD to, quote, do the right thing. Um, that rose to 86% last year from that, from that stat. I mean, you can take a lot of credit for that. What was going on between the police and the community when you came on? And how do, how do you think a uh, police chief can trend that in that direction? Parts. What was going on is uh, we came through some pretty significant personnel issues at that time. Uh, we'd spent a lot of time on the wrong side of the news. And it, we'd lost uh, uh, internal accountability. We'd lost accountability with our staff. Um, our officers were not performing to the optimum they should have. As an organization, we had really lost focus on what we were supposed to be doing. Uh, one of the reasons why we were going too fast too soon, we were trying to initiate change too much on the IT implementation side. The other side is uh, we lost focus of we don't make widgets, we don't make boxes. What we do is provide safety and make people feel safe. And um, that's what had happened. We've had some extremely uh, poor press that and we had earned. And so our officers were starting to feel disconnected. They really didn't like coming to work. It was disgruntled and uh, just probably the worst time I'd seen in a police organization in my career. That's kind of set the screen where we're at. Now, through the majority of my career, I'd worked special assignments. I spent 17 years working on a SWAT team. I'd spent six years working under uh, narcotics, at times under cover narcotics for much as three months at a time. And I realized how difficult um, a police career can be, not only on the officer, but on the family. Uh, my wife is a registered nurse, has her own successful career at St. Charles. And I saw what my the long hours, the stress that I brought home, and the fact that I really never had the resilience to recover on my days off. So I was always um, a little grumpy. And uh, I was trying to coach soccer with, uh, you know, with, with elementary and uh, middle school kids. And I just, I just knew there was an easier way to do that. And I had some really great mentors in the military and as a civilian police officer. I had some really great mentors that generally their motto was, it just doesn't have to be this hard. And I believed if you focus not only on the officer, but also on the family, I believe that really, really good results could come out of that. I believe that you could build resilience in your officers. I believe that if they would be uh, a lot more refreshed, and uh, I hate to say the word out loud, but happier when they came to work. Right. Um, that's, that's what I believe was the basis of where we kicked off in 2014. You, you, around your tenure, they talk a lot about um, your focus on officer well-being is—is that what they mean by that, or what? It, can you talk a little bit more about why you put a lot of your time into that that area? Well, I was looking through our department, and we had some very, very, uh, very good officers, very productive officers, and I saw them really dragging. We seldom saw their families around the department, and we didn't see them actually doing anything together off work. Now, why that can be, if you live. 24-7, that's not very healthy, but you do need to have a degree of teamwork and trust. And it was not only the officer's wellness I was worried about, I was worried about the families involved. 
And so when I say officer wellness, it's the ability for an officer to recover from the traumatic calls that they go to, the ability to uh, be resilient and recover their sleep patterns, their ability to actually engage at home in a meaningful way rather than just having to wait to go back to work. To me, it meant more than just earning a paycheck. I meant a way of life where the family was also involved for the betterment, if you will, and this will sound corny, of society, in this case, society being the city of Bend. And that's what I meant is being able to get the entire family unit supportive of what we do, and that's provide safety and security and have pride in the city where you live in. That's what I mean by officer wellness, because it's this, this job can be so toxic. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I give you one instance. And one day I did CPR on three people, and all three of them died. The last time I was doing CPR on that individual for about 13 to 15 minutes before I had any assistance because it was a snowy day and all the ambulances were out. And I had a very astute um, lieutenant at that time who saw me come in, he listened to the radio and said, you just need to go home. You've got problems. And I, you know, hell, I ain't got problems. I'm a cop, right? Right. I'm a SWAT cop. We have that. And he saw it in me. And before I got home, I pulled off the side of the road and I, and I had just, just weeped. Just the toxicness of that. And yeah. I also see a lot of this every day, you know, the, the, the dead baby calls. Uh, the calls where they just have no tools to help the people that need help. And uh, we hire very socially aware and caring people. And for an officer to have that inside of him and not have a vent for it or ability to uh, place that somewhere where it should be, is just not conducive to being a good professional and delivering good services. And my understanding, yeah, it does. And my understanding is that um, you plan on taking what you've learned and what you've taught with the Ben PD, and you're going to do more instruction in this area for police officers. Yeah, I've already. Last year, I was invited back to the International Chiefs of Police. Uh, it's a conference for all chiefs of police from around the world come together, and I was asked uh, to make two presentations. Um, it, uh, interesting enough, the first presentation we filled up a room of over 200 people. The second presentation, we actually got bumped back by President, uh, the president making unexpected uh, appearance at the International Chief Conference. So we are set, our training is <laughs> actually scheduled to be at the very height of the conference. But we got pushed back to the very last training slot of the four-day conference on the last day at the last stop. And I thought, well, here's a sleeper. We're done. And we filled a room of well, about 400 people. We filled it. They were interested to hear how we do things at BMPD. There's other departments there also that have good resilience plans, but I was just really impressed with the fact we were able to draw that many people at the end of the conference. The Department of Justice has already reached out to me on two different occasions, had me go to different locations, uh, one in Nevada and also one in Florida, and speak on our program. They've also sent our uh, captains and our lieutenants to other places, Texas, California, uh, Washington State, where they've asked, can you come give a presentation on your officer wellness program, we want we want to be able to introduce it, and so um, that's that's where we are nationwide. We've already been asked to spread that. Uh, most recently, in uh, June of this year, a German newspaper, a daily newspaper from the Frankfurt Daily Press, got a hold of us, and they reached out to me via email, and they want the interview uh, from the ben, from the chief of police of Ben because they had done their research and they determined that the Ben Police Department was doing a really good job when it came to serving the community and through uh, the mm-hmm. struggle we're having right in our profession. And so they did a uh, two and a half hour interview with me and they uh, featured it on their Sunday edition in June. 
Um, so it's not only nationwide, we've also expanded to where we're being recognized uh, internationally for our work at MDA. Jim, this is Nicole Vulcan, the uh, Central Oregon's least interesting editor. Uh, <laughs> that I better introduce myself since we're on this podcast. Uh, just hopping in here to visit with all of you. You mentioned tools um, that your officers may or may not have. What sort of tools in your mind don't they have and should they have them? Quite frankly, I think it's, maybe this isn't the right way to phrase it, but one of the challenges we have now is we do not have enough time to provide adequate training for the demands of a police officer's job. We just don't. And I know this because I've trained with European teams and I see how much training they, they put their officers through and make available for their officers. You know, it's, so I think that's probably a better way to see it. They need the tools in the form of more training away from the job so they, can, they have the ability to process what we're giving them so they can apply it in the field. You know, I think you and I would both agree, Nicole, that our job has changed immensely in the past 90 days. You know, and, and a lot of it is not being driven by data or fact. A lot of it's being driven by emotional responses. And uh, so it's hard to encapsulate that in a 15-minute briefing training. It's hard to encapsulate that in any kind of training at all without training being easy to understand, repetitive, and then practiced. So that's kind of what I'm saying, the tools that they don't have right now. We're unable to give them what they need because, quite frankly, training is expensive. It just is. I guess what I meant by should they have them um, <clears throat> was uh, just thinking about the, the mental health co um, component of what officers are compelled to do in their jobs. Um, As a profession, I'll say this because I, we base BIM Police Department off this. There's something called... Uh, crisis incident training, where you're trained to deal with people who are in crisis. With BIMPD, it's, it's a 40-hour class. This class is taught by people who have mental health challenges. It's taught by professionals, psychologists. Uh, the people with mental health challenges come in and interact with officers in this uh, in setting of classroom and say, this is what I see when you come towards me and speak to me. When you say this, this is what I hear. You may think you mean this, but this is what I hear. And they have people come in and talk to them, people they respect, talk about the crises that have pushed them almost to the edge of suicide, taking their own lives. Why, for the life of me, I don't understand why every police chief and sheriff is not engaging this advanced mental health interaction training to help people that are in crisis. I mean, we saw our, we saw our mental health calls double in two years, and we saw them double again. We're up to where they're over 200% increase since 2013. And Jim, is that, I mean, with an increase like that, that's, do you think that that's an, um, an awareness that the NPD now has versus the number of people that would actually, there's not an increase of that, that number of people with mental health issues. It's just probably more of an awareness showing up for NPD. No, no, it isn't, because this is tracked directly from calls for service through the 911 center. These have actually increased at that rate I told that I was just talking about. So it isn't we're more aware of people mental illness. This is actually when they come in, it's determined that it's a mental health crisis, or in some cases, we could get dispatched to, let's say, a shoplifter who's arguing with a, with a store merchant. We get there and we find out it's not criminal-based. 
It's mental health based. And the individual just doesn't understand why the store person is insisting they pay or doesn't understand why this uh, person working at the store is saying, you took something from us. They just don't understand it. So this is direct hard numbers out of the dispatch center. These aren't Ben PD numbers. These are 911 dispatch centers. So we have seen an amazing increase. And we saw that in 2014. It was the most dramatic one. And that's when we moved to form our own mental health team of uh, officers, special responses. Right. Was there any change in the 911 operators um, pr um, procedures at that time where they did they receive a new training? I know that's not you are not personally responsible for what they're doing, but just curious if, that, if on their end there was another there was an identification trigger that might have also happened. Uh, not to my knowledge. Okay. Then again, you'd have to ask 911. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the program that you helped to start to bring the mental health professional on and maybe just a little bit about what these mental health calls are like for officers. Cause I know, as you said, you know, huge spike up 10% every year. Um, just talk about that a little bit. Sure. Uh, late 2014, I was at my work and I was listening to OPB, which is right. What I listened to. And they were talking about the San Antonio model where the San Antonio police department actually formed special officers who went out and engaged people in mental health crisis. At the same time, we were trying to figure out how do we manage these, how do we be innovative and how do we get ahead of these mental health calls? So I went to the city manager, Eric King, and Eric King is just, was just a phenomenal boss. He was a great mentor. He taught me a lot of things about governance, but he was always open to innovation. I said, I need enough money for two officers and a sergeant to form a specialized team. I want them to get special training and I want them to get ahead of the call. I want them to be proactive. I want them out in the homeless camps, talking to people with mental illness. I want them dropping by people's houses what we would call super users, somebody who's using the 911 system a lot more than they need to, and see if we can help those, help those individuals who are in crisis get a hold of uh, counseling. Can we get them out and get their, their medications they need? And can we do that in a way that is less impactful but more focused on results and try to be proactive and push down the calls from the front end? And we had a great deal of success with that. It did slow our calls down over two years. And so what we did is we formed this team, got them special training, and uh, we deployed them. And it's worked out amazingly. Now, we saw the next step of this is we were working with the Hughes County Mental Health, which does a phenomenal job. They just really do. And they're, the thing I really like about them is they're very partnership-based. And that's I'm very partnership-based. And uh, we were able to work with them and co-author a, a grant in which we would um, hire an individual, a, me a professional mental health uh, mental health professional to actually work at the Bend Police Department and respond from the Bend Police Department with or without officers. And so we were able to get that grant in place and uh, we, and geez, it's just been an amazing program. It's just saved us a lot of time. It saved St. Charles a ton of time. We haven't captured all the data on that yet because we no longer have to take individuals in crisis directly to the St. Charles emergency room. We can actually assess them in the field and determine can St. Charles help them or if they can't, and if they can't, then we take them to the right, the right resource to help them. And that may be as simple as just a calm down period and get some medication leveled out. And so it's not only helping Ben PD, it's also helping St. Charles. Yeah, and this is part of the, you know, defund the police conversation. Um, you know, in terms of like moving some funds away from patrol and, and into like social services. 
I was wondering if you could just weigh in on, on that debate with given your direct experience with mental health professionals. I think it's overdue. I don't think it's, you know, here's, here's the challenge. Law enforcement has been asked to address the homelessness issue. We've been asked to address a mental health issue. And that is not our area of expertise. It just isn't. We've had to learn that because there was nobody taking care of that. And, and the answer is for police just to shove homeless people from one place to another is not an answer. We have a, we have a, home, we have a, you know, a residential crisis where people can't, live, can't find a place to live. We have people with mental health issues living under bridges, not by choice. We have people with addictions living underneath bridges, you know, because, and people say, well, they want to live there. Uh, that's, that's just a mantra that isn't true. Just isn't. I've been out there. I've talked to those folks. I know it's not true. And so we have this challenge of law enforcement had to adapt this entire set of requirements that aren't ours. They just really aren't. We can't build houses for people and we can't provide mental health services. So I think when you hear defund police, what you hear is we want social services better funded. We want housing, uh, uh, better funded. We want things to change that have been building over the past few years. And we want, we want to take it from the police because right now, quite frankly, uh, to some degree, we've earned, earned the, um, the, the uh, over-focus we're getting now. And I don't think anybody, any, I don't believe anybody rationally has said, take money away from the police. Because I will tell you right now, to take money away from police will do nothing but worsen the problem. We need to give more money and more focus into training the police officers, making them more efficient, and bring them up to the level of expectations of, uh, of what the citizens want. You know, because quite frankly, the expectations of citizens more likely not came from a movie or television. Yeah. Hey, Jim. Jim, along those same lines, how do you feel about the increased role that the police have within the school district, the SRO officers, and, and, and how that relationship just looks like it's continuing to expand? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, we've had that, we've had that for over 20 years. We've had that uh, partnership in place with uh, Ben Lapine School District. We find that exceptionally, exceptionally, if I were to say that, what, if somebody asked me, what's our most successful problem? I would say that it's our partnership with the school district. Uh, our officers actually work for the principal there. Yes, they get their paycheck from me, but they respond to the principal's need. Because every school has a little different culture, right? Every school probably answer, has a little bit different demographics. So every principal has to be able to formulate his school to what his demographics are and what the needs are of the students and the families. That's why we, when we select an officer to go to a school, the school board has two people on that selection team, and they help us select who they want in their schools. And if they say they don't think that person fits, that, per that officer does not go out there. You know, so we see it as a, you know, as, as a force multiplier and a very, very good use of funding. Because that officer's in the school, and you know, nine times out of ten, he can make corrective actions working with a school district, which will never, ever impact that student as they get older in the form of documentation or in the form of some kind of arrest of, of some sort because they take care of that lower level. And this, the uh, school resource officers embed themselves in the culture of the school district and they do an amazing job. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I have to brag, you know, two of, my, two of our school resource officers were Division I athletes and played very competitive at that level. And they just have this innate ability to understand the education process because years they spent 
in higher education, and they understand teamwork. And they are they just do a really great job in the schools. You know, we interdict issues with mental health all the time. Now you don't hear about them because there's some pretty strong uh, statutes around the preservation of juveniles' records. You don't hear about the time our officers intervene, go to a home and talk a child out of something very, very terrible happening and we're able to work with the parents and get them there. And uh, their, their primary job is interaction, making change without enforcement. So I really, while some school districts moved away, I, there's more than sufficient data and more than sufficient facts present to show that at least our, our school referral program is, is beyond measure for whatever terms where we invest. Okay. Laurel, did, oh, sorry. Um, sure, I'll talk. Um, I was just, you know, with, uh, obviously police reform has been in the news so much lately and the Oregon State Legislature um, voted on a, a bunch of things in June, including chokeholds. And I know that you have a strong opinions about that. So I was wondering if, you could talk about that the legislature did not ultimately ban them in Oregon and I know that's what you wanted right well I didn't want to ban Oregon. okay here here's the administrative wonk chief talking I like to see legislation and policies come out of factual data incidences not a problem you know not a solution looking for a problem but actually if there's a problem let's find a solution uh, we have never used a police chokehold in the manner in which uh, is alleging to be to be unused. You know, uh, George Floyd was not killed with the chokehold. He was, uh, I have not seen the autopsy results, but it's obvious we had a situation where you have what we call positional asphyxia, where you're holding somebody down and they can't breathe. For 10 years, our profession has been taught, taught when somebody says they can't breathe, you set them up in an upright position or you roll them onto their side, right? And that wasn't done. And it has nothing to do with chokeholds. Uh, officers have, we're asking officers on the ground fighting for their life that you cannot touch someone's throat, which is unrealistic. Nobody, nobody can do that. Nobody in that, when you're in that lower rung of Maslow's theory where you're talking about self-preservation, has the sense to be able to not uh, place any kind of hold on somebody's neck. Uh, twice in my career, I've been in the positions where someone was armed and wanted to take my life. And in both times, we were able to use a, a neck restraint and able to subdue the individual. And those individuals are still alive today. If I'd have been in a situation where I was what we call authorized to use deadly force and protect myself or others, and if I had to use my firearm, neither one of those individuals would have been alive today. And one instance, I was laying on top of my gun, fighting with individuals, trying to get a shotgun to my head to shoot me. And um, if it hadn't been for uh, being able to put a, a neck restraint on him, that my partner finally showed up probably would have had to use his firearm. So there is a use for neck restraints if what we call deadly force is authorized. Any other time we shouldn't use neck restraints. Only in the situations where deadly force is authorized to protect yourself or others. That's that's my position on it. And uh, again, it's just we're asking cops to do something physiologically they can't do, and that means untrain their mind to protect themselves in a very hostile situation. That makes sense? Yeah. Jim, uh, as we're closing our time out here, it is a difficult time for 
officers right now, um, a lot of scrutiny. How do you how do you think a police department like Bend turns hearts and minds? I mean, you've talked a lot about working on the wellness for your police officers, but in an environment like this, what is it that you would do as a as a chief to get out there and try to change people's opinions or, uh, that's coming in nationally? I think it's what we've already been doing. I think it's, um, first off, you take care of your officers. You keep, keep them mentally and physically healthy. You keep, teach them how, you know, you introduce them to yoga. You introduce, introduce them to uh, meditation. You know, we were spotlighted on a national, um, a national filming. It's, uh, oh, let me, it's coming to me. Oh, Mindfulness Goes Mainstream. They spotlighted them police department's activities on that. And so it's two-part. You keep the officers healthy so they go out and when they interact with an individual, they're interacting from a very good spot. Uh, the second half is you get them out of the cars. You park the police cars, you get them out of the cars and have them go face-to-face, shake hands, and talk to people. And that's what we did. We incentivized that. Um, we incentivized that by an officer who does 21 hours of positive interaction with the public outside of their police car, and we provide them with a 2% bonus at the end of the year. And we saw amazing results out of that. We saw immediate gratification from the citizens. And funny enough, we saw officers really start to enjoy having positive interaction. Rather than what we call chasing the 911 calls coming in all the time, or going to negative situations, they started having real-time positive interactions in the parks, in the schools, the veterans clubs, the boys and girls clubs. And it just really helped our officers overcome, if you will, that wave of constant negative interactions. So those things I would say, take care of the officers and get them out of their cars. I mean, for the time that you were police chief, I mean, social media has just grown incredibly. And the strategies that you're talking about are face-to-face, but do you feel like as we get more into this media-driven world and there's more social media out there, will that continue to work? I believe it's the only thing that will continue to work. I just do. Social media can only take you so far, right? We're still human beings. We're still wired for face-to-face contact. And I can't believe the the three of you haven't felt a little distracted or pushed away by these Zoom meetings and people team meetings. And don't you you feel a part of your life is kind of missing, not sitting across the table and laughing with someone? No, it's it's painful, Jim. Yeah. I didn't realize what a social individual I was until I couldn't sit down and have a beer and a hamburger with my friends. Right. And I believe that if that we can never fill that entire gap with media. I don't believe that. I believe maybe you want to talk just briefly about the Ben PD's um, uh, statement that they put out right after the George Floyd murder on social media as, you know, as an example of that type of outreach. Are, are you talking about my statement? Was it yours? I'm not sure if it, or if it was the or if it was from Ben PD. No, I don't recall. It, it was my statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just am enraged. I was enraged. I was upset. I was angered. I saw. I tell you, there's nothing a good cop hates more than a bad cop, because we know we wear their stain every time we get out of a car, no matter if they're two thousand miles away or not. And I saw all the good work that all the good cops in America do go right down the tube because another white cop sitting on top of a black man saying, I can't breathe and not getting up and letting him breathe and do what that cop was taught to do. That cop was never taught to hold somebody on the ground. He was taught to set them up or roll them on the side. And I knew that that officer on top of him 
when, when final investigation came out, I knew that officer would have a file of repetitive complaints and repetitive disciplinary issues. We don't have a police officer. I don't believe we have a police officer problem in America. I believe we have a police sergeant and a police lieutenant problem in America because those people in that chain of command are not holding those officers accountable because they know which officers in their ranks need to change. Jim, we have a big impact on that. Sorry, Aaron. That's okay. We only have a couple minutes left. Uh, Nicole, you want to ask a final question? No, I just thought, you know, I, I was just curious about the impact of that statement um, in terms of community response. You know, it was, it was well received by the community. I, I, received, I received thank yous from international uh, individuals who had followed us, followed what was going on. Um, inside, my officers are confused. Some of them are very angry. They're saying, I am not a racist. I would never do that to someone of color. I just hate the fact that we have to come out and even defend ourselves because we work so hard every day. You know, I have officers who adopted biracial kids. I have officers who adopted uh, children of color. And they're saying, I am not a racist, but now I get to wear this because of him. So it was a lot of anger, a lot of frustration by the officers who work hard within. But a lot of them recognize we all have implicit bias, right? We, we just do. The problem with a lot of police training is we're trained into that implicit bias because we're told of cues of criminal activity, cues of trafficking, and those kind of things. And part of those, quite frankly, I'll tell you, have uh, a little bit of implicit bias. In it. And we're working, our, we're working our best to move away from that. 